Hello, everybody. My name is Josh. I'm the moderator for tonight for the Gamer Geek Lockdown podcast on high-level gaming. Um, I know that originally we had the idea of doing a specific to 5e, but Alpha was late, and he therefore forfeited his ability to um, have any say, and that means that we are doing this on a number of systems, including 5e. Uh, High-level gaming, what does that mean? I would say that usually that means if you're in the context of Pathfinder or D&D, it's usually probably above level 12. I think 12 is the agreed upon level that things start to kind of shift from mid to high level. Well, uh, we're going to sit here tonight and we're going to have some conversations with some of our panelists. We have Darkness or Michelle, we have Devin, and we have Brandon. Why don't you all introduce yourselves just a quick introduction in case anybody who has not listen to any of our podcasts before, um, is just tuning in for the first time. Give us a brief introduction about yourself, your history in gaming, what kind of games you run. We'll start with you, Michelle. Okay, well, my name is Michelle, or Darkness, as you can see. Um, I've been gaming from around the early Middle Ages to now, so literally thousands of years, you can see. Um, I've gamed pretty well every system, including 5e. Um, there's a system I haven't uh, tried. It's a very obscure one. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, I don't know, I, in actual fact, I've probably been gaming about, I guess, 30 some years. Great. Uh, Devin, what about you? Hello, I'm Devin. I've been gaming since I was 11, although technically you could count before that when I ran around the backyard with sticks talking about damage. Um, and, uh, I mostly run D&D, that's pr- primarily what I've been doing, um, but I am also have been involved with a few other games here and there, uh, mostly in the streaming circle. Great, and maybe we'll give you an opportunity to plug some of that here at the end, but, uh, we'll just jump into Brandon. Um, so yeah, my name is, uh, Brandon, I've been, uh, playing D&D, kind of played it for a few years in high school, uh, what would that have been, 20 years ago, I guess? 15, 20 years ago, um, and then uh, came back to it via Controlled Chaos as part of uh, KW Gamers a few years ago, and played with a few of the fine folks on the server here, um, and started DMing only uh, maybe a couple years ago. So I'm kind of the, the new kid on the block, but I've been running 5e games of all levels, and uh, played in a few other systems as well uh, with, again, folks from uh, KW Gamers. Great. And again, my name is Josh. I'm the moderator tonight, so I won't be getting involved, but I might have a few things that I jump into here and there. I've been running games for 20-ish years, I guess. Mostly 3-5 when I started, and um, all sorts of different systems. Cthulhu, which is not a level-based system, so it's not applicable here. Uh, just everything. So um, what I'm going to do, maybe before we get into the questions, because we do have some questions, we'll start off with just a bit of an explanation from each person as to what your experience with high-level gaming is, what you would sort of define as high-level gaming, what are some of the characteristics of high-level gaming, what are some of the benefits and some of the challenges of a high-level game. And we'll go in reverse order. So why don't we go uh, be right and start with you. Sure. Uh, so in general, particularly for something like 5e, um, High-level gaming for me is kind of once you hit that that uh, second bump in damage from things like cantrips, um, and uh, you start getting access to some of those higher-level spells, um, where you can really kind of dramatically affect combat, dramatically affect people, uh, you know, regions at the time instead of 
folks in a room, things like that. That's kind of where high-level combat, high-level gaming kind of starts, at least in a mechanics-heavy system like D&D or Pathfinder for me. So what about, what are some of the advantages that you would say are there, or what are some of the features that you would say, like what makes high-level gaming, what is the big change, um, and what are maybe some of the drawbacks on that high-level gaming that you've experienced? I think for me, the big thing is that you are definitely moving um, kind of into a more uh, heroic, kind of very recognizable heroic um, kind of situation where you are going to now be saving entire towns. You're going to be interacting with nobles and, um, you know, in a fantasy setting, you're going to be interacting with nobles, you're going to be interacting with governments as opposed to individual cities or towns, things like that. Um, and you have the kind of capabilities that you can face off against bigger things. You can face a dragon and easily survive. You can face some of these big kind of scary type creatures that could literally wipe out your entire party in one blow when you're at lower levels. Once you get into this stage, you can be challenging avatars of gods. You can be challenging all of these kind of higher level beings at a much, much grander scale. Um, one of the big drawbacks of that is all of the kind of bits and pieces of the mechanics generally start falling apart a little bit because you can pull out so many things and, you know, a magic user can pull out so many different spells and a, um, a fighter or barbarian can just deal so much damage that you really have to, uh, particularly as a GM or DM, you really have to build your encounters and build your structure around uh, the characters themselves. There's no way that you can just do a general encounter or a general situation and assume that your party is going to either totally be able to blow it out of the water or deal with it at all. I guess it almost, at one point, when you're high enough level, when you start talking about mythic levels in Pathfinder or we start talking about epic levels, the idea of a random encounter is almost... Pointless, unless unless you're in like a mythic zone or something to that effect, I guess. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll pass that on to Devin. What do you see? Or uh, what is your definition of high level? What are some of the challenges? What are some of the features that kind of make a high level game different or more exciting for players? So high level to me is basically when you're no longer like you wouldn't be considered an adventurer or a um, sort of a. a a mercenary. You are now uh, in charge of swaths of land or armies, or you are uh, palling around with leaders, uh, national national leaders, kings, queens, that sort of thing. Uh, if you're involved in all of that kind of thing, at that point, I believe you've reached high level play. Um, if we're talking strictly D and D, like personally, I see level seven as kind of the epitome that a mortal can achieve, and then anything beyond that is is like supernatural. So. It kind of does depend a little bit on what exactly you want to refer to, but I think high level basically is when you are, the decisions you make have a, a rippling effect and change upon the world itself rather than just something that you are doing to kind of pass time or to win, get some money. Uh, the advantages are kind of built into that in that you can... Uh, you can you get to enjoy being able to get involved with all of this world-spanning things and uh, these huge threats. Uh, the disadvantages are that uh, kind of the same thing: is that if you you're you're um, 
consequence of failure becomes much higher, uh, and it can it can lead to a lot more um, epic situations of success and failure. Uh, and it also, as a game master, can become a lot more difficult to prepare and to uh, to run because there's so many more moving parts going on. Uh, I guess in a nutshell, it would be the difference is a low-level, low-tier game would be the first Captain America movie, and epic level, high level would be Infinity War. Like, that's that huge shift in scope. Okay, interesting. Now, it's funny that you say seventh level, because I guess that must be a 5e thing. I have to admit that I'm relatively <laughs> ignorant of 5e. I have not played a whole lot. So, uh, seventh level is interesting, though. It just seems sort of like I would consider that to be almost where the beginning of the fun happens, at least in a Pathfinder context. Everything seems to be most balanced to me. We'll pass that off to Darkness or Michelle. Well, in my case, I, I think I tend to have a, a bit of a nuanced view of it. Uh, to me, level where things become epic have a lot more to do with your relation to the world than it does specific level, because it really depends on what your world is built around. I mean, say for example, most cards are all first level, and your seventh level, you're pretty awesome. If they're all like seventh level, then you're just sort of catching up. Um, so I think it has a lot to do with relative, but I would agree with the concept that to me, epic level is where you start being able to affect the world and in a significant fashion. You're no longer just a guy who fights for an army, or you're no longer the guy who just you know, fights for pay. At that point, almost pay is almost irrelevant. You're affecting the entire the destinies of nations, so to speak. Uh, you know, you can explore great themes and uh, concepts, that sort of thing. You can start looking at things like, you know, somebody's destiny and, you know, all these large, larger-than-life kind of uh, situations. Um, as everybody knows, I'm, I'm not a person who's really all that concerned about balance. <laughs> so... Um, to me, it's, it, a lot of it is relative, uh, but that would be my definition of epic. The big benefit of it is that, especially as a DM, to me anyway, you can start exploring large themes. Uh, you know, you're no longer exploring that cave. You're exploring the possibly the concept of goodness, or I mean, you could it, any, any number of great myths, you know, you're the person who creates legends. And for the players, of course, the fun part is what you get to wield, you know, great power, you no longer just grubbing for food. Um, but they're very different types of adventures. I'll say the, um, the downside of it is a little less, there's a little less um, focus on uh, the day-to-day -day and um, minutia of, you know, even the minutia of warfare, which I think actually is, is quite important even at high level um, in order to accommodate, you know, my great spells and great powers and, you know, mighty thews and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot more number crunching. Yeah, I, I can definitely speak to that almost. And that's one of the things I'm just going to jump right into a, a question. Do you feel that at higher levels... I'm going to just bounce this right off to, to Devin. Do you feel that at higher levels that in order to keep the gameplay the gameplay moving, you almost need digital dice rollers? Um, for example, 
when I play Pathfinder or when I have played Pathfinder in, in the past, if you don't have Hero Lab, which is what we have, which calculates all the different status modifiers past even level 10, it's just, it's a moot point. And it's funny that you even get to the point at like level 15 where there's so much going on that it even crashes the program sometimes. So it just like, I don't know how anybody's expected to do that on pen and paper, but do you feel like that's a necessity at higher level play? specifically high high level play uh for the most part i would i would agree um a lot of the problem with high level play is that it, it's a very small percentage of the player base tends to reach it so a lot of game designers don't really do a lot of testing in there and they don't get it maybe as uh, as fleshed out and as uh, as uh, well designed as it should be um one thing that I would hope is that if they've been playing the character since the early days, that they would have a very deep understanding of how their character works, so they would be able to just go, go, go on what they need to do. But, I mean, we're also human, and we can only do so much. And in the terms of, like, Pathfinder, like you're saying, they're just, it does get kind of just get ridiculous. Um, and in that case, I, I have definitely used digital dice for many things um you know if the, if the number of dice i'm rolling goes past five or six usually i'm especially if i'm dming i'm just going to digital roll that just to keep things moving um the difficulty is that sometimes players really like being able to roll a lot a lot of dice that's one of the big selling points of Shadowrun. so in in that case as long as everyone's having fun and everyone is just enjoying rolling dice i don't really think it's a problem um Keeping track of status effects and that, yeah, that might be good. I mean, there are things you can get. You can get little poker chip tokens and little things like that. But, yeah, it, it can start to get a bit ridiculous. So having digital help is definitely, I think at this point, since we it's so easily accessible, is almost a necessity. Great. And how about you, Michelle? What do you think? Do you think that it gets to a point where it's all, like a pen and paper is almost impossible to maintain? So anybody here ever played Champions? I can't say I have, no. Where, where you would have an attack that was literally 80d6, and that yeah. was a common attack, or um, when we used to play uh, Rollmaster, that had literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different tables you had to refer to? I can't say I have. <laughs> they were grossly complex games. Um, the big thing is, to me, um, usually by the time that you get those levels, you are... Experience, as was said before, you're experienced enough with the system that you can do some of that work yourself. Uh, I do like, I'm, I'm, I, I love technology. I do love the, the, the digital dice and that sort of thing. But I think that usually by the time you reach, assuming that you started level one and went up, you're fairly familiar with your character enough that you can run that part. It's more difficult for the DM because you have to be fairly well-versed in the game system Otherwise, your players will tend to run roughshod over you system-wide. I mean, I've had, a lot of my players aren't exactly what you call rule lawyers, but I've had players who were, you know, who would literally memorize the rules so much that they could really take a lot of uh, advantage of, you know, flaws in the system. The higher level you are, the more that, that becomes a, a factor. So you do need to know the system well enough or in my case, be, you know, mean enough to say, no, I don't care, that doesn't work. <laughs> Brandon, but, how about you? I think, so for me, who has had probably, I want to say, half to three quarters of my 
um, DM experience, particularly with 5e, uh, mediated by um, digital platforms. I don't know if I would ever not use a dice roller, particularly for running the game. There's just so many pieces um, and, you know, big stacks of dice or seven different dice or, you know, you can't memorize all the creatures and their stats and their attacks and all the different things. I don't know. I don't know how effective I would be if I had to also keep all of that running in my head along with, uh, particularly at high level games, trying to deal with the, you know, nation level and world level events that are happening related to the party itself. When it's a one shot, when it's, you know, level one, level five, yeah, pretty easy. Even up to kind of level eight, level nine, I've run a few level eight um, one shots that are pretty pretty um, easy to do kind of on paper. But as soon as you get up into that higher level, or if you have big parties, um, some of my big uh, my big campaigns right now, I have you know six party members, and a couple of them have companions, and one of them has a, a pet, and you know all of this. As soon as you get into that, I really I use a lot of, um, you know, Avray or d Beyond or whatever the platform might be that we're using to dump out either rolls or dump out, you know, average damage, average hit points, average all these things. Because really in the end, um, it's going to make minute differences between in the outcome. Sure, it might, it might get a little more predictable if you have a whole horde of the same thing doing the same damage all the time. But if that's the case then it's going to be basically minions anyways. If you have one big bad, then sure, roll the dice and do it. But if you have a whole bunch of things, then it doesn't really contribute anything, I feel and I find, to the overall story. I'm just going to stick with you here, actually. And this sort of came up with one of the things that Devin touched on, and I wanted to bring this up because this is one of our questions. What is the fundamental difference in how you think about, as a GM, how do you think about how do you prepare... Uh, a high level campaign versus a mid tier or even say a beginning tier like what what are the differences in your preparation design and um, just general differences between the different sort of we'll call them the mid yeah the three different tiers of, of, of experience in the game how do you balance that out I think um, I think the big thing for me is that when I'm doing prep. I'm very much, uh, I'm very much a, a fan of kind of fly flourish and the kind of the lazy, the lazy approach where it's very much what do you know for sure your your uh, your party is going to actually run into? What are they actually going to see? What are the key story points that you want, or not even story points? What are the key kind of elements that you want them to run into? And then whichever direction the story goes, plant that thing in front of them as opposed to having like, oh, this thing is going to be in that tavern. It'll be like, this thing is in a town. So if they go to a town, then you can plant it there in front of them, right? It's almost like trying to minimize how much prep you do for things that they may or may not see. You're making sure that what they see and what you prep generally are, the important things they see are the things that you prepped and anything that's not really important, you can make up or improvise or roll on a table or whatever it might be. Because if it's not super important, you shouldn't have to plan it ahead of time. The major challenge is that at higher level play, 
instead of preparing like, oh, there's a few monsters here or here's a town and there's a couple people in it, you're looking at nations and governments and massive organizations. So you have to do a lot more in terms of the um, the story of the world, the structure of the world, the you know government relations and all of that. So the higher level play actually requires, in my experience at least, more um, more world building, I guess. Even so how do you, how do you, I'm going to just add this as a second question. This will go up to everybody as well, but how do you design encounters and build that around that too? Because like, to be honest, it's, it's really easy to fall into a trap of the world is at threat all the time. And all, you know, when, when everything's a threat, nothing's a threat. So how do you balance it out and keep that level of excitement when there's no such thing as a random encounter. You can't just come across a spider anymore and you have to fight. Like, how do you keep that excitement up when everything you fight, even the mooks are, um, potentially world th threats of the world type of thing, like mythic monsters. So I think one of the big, one of the big things I do, especially for encounters is that I always leave, uh, an out for whoever they're fighting and I always leave an in for them to get reinforcements. And I do that for both sides. So I always leave it in such a way so that um, the the baddie, the opponent, the whatever, um, isn't really like a hard black and white, you know, good and evil, whatever you want to call it, um, player, or they have uh, a player in the, in the kind of world, um, or they have some kind of backup that may or may not arrive. So if you want to use, um, you know, this type of monster or this type of uh, society or government or whatever it is, always make sure you have an in to be like, oh, and there whoever shows up or and they escape in, you know, a way that fits their background and their story. And similarly for the players, I usually try to make sure that they either have something or someone they can call in or there's an NPC that is around that can maybe step in so that you don't have to worry as much about designing encounters because you can always nudge one side or the other up or down to make to make the experience more engaging and more interesting. Michelle, I'll pass that off to you. Same questions. What do you find is the difference as, and challenges as a GM between balancing those three different tiers, uh, high level versus the other two. And how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it exciting and not sort of fall into that drudgery of everything's a, a, a giant threat? So in my case, I think I, I will agree with, um, I will agree with a bit of a proviso uh, with um, uh, a previous uh, statement that world building is a big part of it. So I usually say at low level, you got to build a village. At high level, you got to build a world. And you should more or less know how these various things interact. Now, the way I tend to do it is I tend to have multiple actors and multiple situations evolving in the world. Basically, I know what's going on more or less in the history of the world. And as everyone knows, well, people who play with me know, I usually run a sandbox game. So I don't, I don't, say, ah, oh, you know, you're, you're destined to be the savior of Calistra because, well, that's the adventure I have for you. It largely has to do with what the players want to do, what they either stumble on or get involved with. And then sometimes, like, for example, if they're not there, um, this situation 
continues to evolve. And sometimes a small situation can become a huge problem now that high levels have to take care of it, or, or assuming they do take care of it. I've actually had situations where the situation was involved and then they, they went there, but it had already been resolved by, you know, other adventurers. Um, so it really depends. Things, you know, I, I usually don't have anything. Um, mine is basically like a sandbox that evolves over time. And um, it's not always... I usually let the players more or less choose what they want to be involved in. <clears throat> Sometimes they may not have a choice. I mean, they may just jump out at them because they waited so long and now it's a, a huge problem. But it really depends on the circumstance. Consequences of their actions. I'll pass this one off to Devin, though. Uh, so I think the one of the major differences between a low uh, running a low level and a, and a higher level game is that uh, improving a higher level game is leagues more difficult because of kind of what's already been said in regards to the difference between a village and a world. Um, when things like planner travel and cosmic mythology and world spanning teleportation become a thing, you, you can't really just kind of fly by the seat of your pants because they could just go all over the place. And you, you got to have something ready to make it feel like it's it's lived in and that it's it's a real place. So prep work does become a lot more. Uh, involved, I find, uh, when you're running something higher level. Um, you also want to be more, kind of building off of what Michelle was saying, more complex. You want to have more going on. When you're lower level, you're going around taking out you know, goblin tribes or, or something. It, you don't really care what the neighboring nations are dealing with, usually at the time. You're just trying to focus on this one little task. But when you start getting to that higher level where you are responsible, you own land, you have a whole, you might even be running a village or running a town or a city, you're going to be caring what the neighboring nations are doing and saying because that could affect what you have a vested interest in. So you, you do have to expand outwards and you have to kind of approach it more, less on, a, on an adventure scale and more of a just straight up world building uh, to kind of bounce off of what everybody else has been saying. Um, the other thing, though, that you need to consider is what your players can do, what their abilities are, and what kind of capabilities they have. Because some, when you get to the higher levels, there are some spells and items and abilities and things that they'll be able to do, which can very quickly remove a three. Normally, what would be like a three-hour challenge for a lower-level group, they could clear in three seconds. And you have to be aware of those things because otherwise, you'll find yourself. Uh, kind of without much of a game left in only the first half hour to an hour. So things like Speak with Dead or Divinations um, or large amounts of teleportation and, and lots of crazy things like that, you need to be at least aware that they have these things and plan around them. Not to the point where you're stifling the characters and not letting them use these cool powers that they have, but not to, you don't want to ignore them to the point where they're running through everything uh, without a care in the world. So I, the, the balancing that is, I think, part of the key. Devin, I have something I just uh, want to expand upon that you said. Um, and it is something that is really interesting because it's not something that comes up in low-level or mid-level games often. Planner travel kind of really comes into it. What do you do when your players can do something like a plane shift spell and change not just move across the entire world, but the entire context of your campaign at a moment's notice. A player might just one day say, I want to go to the elemental plane of water, and then all of a sudden you have to deal with that. It's hard enough to do a game world. What are you doing when somebody decides to do some, uh, a huge curveball like that, and all of a sudden you have to improvise 
or like even even something that to expand upon that even further how do you even do things like create the elemental plane of water and breathe life into that or the elemental plane of earth which is just literally solid rock like you know these are things that you don't think about when you're thinking about the goblin cave that you need to clear but these are things that do come up in high level games yeah i mean that, that kind of works into what i was saying where like you, there's just so much more prep involved now i would hope that there, there's sort of an unwritten rule um where the players will generally have an understanding with the with the gm where um the GM is, is running the story and the players are involved in it. And if it's a good game, then the players' interests and what the players are interested in and what their goals are is going to align with what the GM is preparing. So you don't, at least I, I, I don't see this, but you don't usually see a player just all of a sudden saying, you know what, um, I actually don't care about any of this. I'm now going to go to the plane of fire and just chill with some salamanders. You don't generally see that happen. So usually... If something like that is going to happen, you're going to have enough awareness of it that you can have something ready to go. Uh, and if it's not, if, if that is the case, you may just have to say, okay, you can do that. That's fine. Um, we'll need to end early today so that I can get something ready to go. Unless you are very well versed in what those different planes are like. And you may even have some things that you've written up just to have in case somebody goes there to buy time until you're able to do a full-on prep but uh, once when they i mean when your players get access to the plane shift spell you're going to be aware that they're getting access to that hopefully they're telling you that that's the spell they're taking or if it's something you gave them you know that they have it because you gave it to them and so you're going to start thinking about that in the back of your mind you're going to have some ideas for well if they go here i'll i'll have this and then if they want to stay or stick around or want to stay there I'll, I'll come up with something else uh so just having a lot of things in your back pocket, that little modular encounters or areas that you can just drop in here and there can be pretty useful for that kind of situation. Although it can get pretty ridiculous in things like the planescape setting where there's so many planes of different types. And it, it, it you know, it, there, that's kind of where it comes back to the understanding between the players and the GM. It's like you're kind of going on the assumption that they're not just going to just start plane hopping for no apparent reason and that there's going to be a goal to it. So I'm just going to stick with you here. I'm going to combine a couple of questions here because they all are sort of in the same vein. Um, what is, so when players can do crazy things at high levels. How do you keep that interesting at high levels? And how do you keep things like combat engaging, avoiding the dreaded rocket tag? Why don't you explain what rocket tag is? Lastly, also, and how do you avoid high level combat just dragging on and being super slow with the number of dice and variables? Uh, yeah, so um, players can do lots of crazy things at high level, and uh, it can get pretty interesting sometimes. Uh, like they can just snap their fingers and disintegrate someone, you know. So some things that you can get around that. Um, the first is changing the style of play. In lower levels, the players are mostly concerned about their own well-being and whatever goals they might be aligned with. At higher level, when they're responsible for things such as towns or strongholds or uh, certain NPCs or whole kingdoms even maybe. It gets to the point where they can't be everywhere at once even though they are extremely powerful. So one good way to give them challenges and, and give them uh, things that are still tricky and, and that stretch their, uh, their abilities is to threaten the things that they care about and not necessarily themselves. 
high level players are actually quite difficult to really kill um, once they have a good amount of uh, weaponry and uh, spells behind them. But they're, uh, that NPC they really like, who is borderline villager, is a lot easier to hurt and to go after. So by threatening those types of things, or threatening perhaps there's a there's an angry noble who actually has uh, legally acquired the land their stronghold is on and is taking control and all this other stuff, you, you can threaten them in ways that they can't just fireball their way out of uh, very quickly. You can have the king's, the capital's being attacked by this airship, but way on the other side of the continent, the, the really important mine that gives them all their iron and gold that they need is also under attack, and so they have to decide which is the better target, which, how they're going to handle that, if they want to send their minions out to deal with one and then personally go deal with the other, and it gives them more to work with. Uh, and it changes up the style of play. They're not thinking in a small scale with their own group. They're now having to think on a larger uh, scale. But I, I would also say that you can use the environment. You can add more complexity to encounters. Uh, when you're lower level, going into a room and fighting four goblins can actually be a pretty challenging encounter. But after a certain point, going into a room and fighting a bunch of guys is, is just not really challenging or engaging anymore because you can just throw a couple spells or run in, slash everything, and in a couple minutes they're all gone. So something you can do is take advantage of environmental rules. So in, in 5e, for example, one of the ones I like to use is drowning because that doesn't care how, how high level you are or how much health you are. It's all dependent on your uh, one particular ability score that you have. And it, it adds a level of urgency and difficulty to an encounter that is uh, really easy to just sort of mix in here and there. You can have them having a fight on a boat, and then that boat keeps getting hit with waves or some kind of invisible creature that keeps knocking them around. And you can also do things like, uh, I mean, at this high level, they're probably fighting mythical beings of awesome power, so why not have an enemy that can just change the rules of the world? They can just snap their fingers and gravity it completely changes, or they can even affect actual game rules. They can change them around. You can have a, an enemy who is un, unkillable uh, unless you stab their heart and they've hidden their heart somewhere in the complex and you have to go find it and stab it but the whole time they're chasing after you and constantly attacking you and you're wearing, slowly being worn down and it becomes this race with time. And So there are things you can do to make it more interesting but it definitely does require a lot more complexity and lateral thinking rather than just throwing a couple of counters at them. And in terms of the rocket tag as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. Sort of alternate win conditions. Rocket tag, of course, being the idea of playing tag with rocket launchers where everything's squishy and deals a ton of damage. Whoever wins initiative wins the fight. Basically. Essentially, yes. Michelle, how about you? How do you keep it interesting? How do you avoid... What's your take on avoiding things like rocket tag? Um, and how do you deal with just some of the, the crazy things that are available, even some of those crazy spells... Well, I never really had a problem with um, with the various power levels. Largely, it has to do with uh, the nature of the encounter. So, that depending on what every spell is, not necessarily if you try to fireball your way through everything, it will eventually kick you back. But again, since I run a sandbox, I don't usually um, directly try to take a hand to try to say, "Oh, you know, these guys have been just fireballing everything. I'm just going to screw them up." But it's funny how almost inevitably, depending on having huge powers and 
spells, it does in fact actually tend to, um, you know, um, kick back because um, if you go into something, I find a lot of times people play, like for example, play mages a lot like if, uh, someone with a gun. They got a really powerful spell and that's pretty well all they think about. Um, you know, I go in, fire my spell, and we're all good. Um, that tends to have some serious drawbacks. Um, I had a player who was like, you know, like someone who power power levels or power games, and uh, he had a in, in attack. Remember, Dad, you were talking about like the uh, playing with uh, rocket launchers. He basically had an attack that almost nothing could survive. Um, but there was um, or this was uh, three point five. No, uh, yeah, three point five. I think it was three point five. Yeah, but there was a type of demon that has this field that whatever damage you do to it, it does to everything in it. <laughs> something like a hundred foot radius and uh, he blew himself up and pretty well everybody else with it and it's kind of interesting that the the advantage of your characters being mythic you know herculean heroes <clears throat> everybody knows about them They're, they don't have the benefit of anonymity as well right so if no. you think about it um if you were to be somebody who wanted to counter that you know the stories of that person you know their abilities generally speaking so you would be dumb to go and fight them on their terms you have to think unorthodox yeah there's another thing too like i used to say that so a lot of people who play with me would know i i, I love thieves <laughs> i've played a thief for a long time and i i, I especially in in, uh, in dungeons and dragons i love thieves are fun as heck to play and but i always tell people like if you're when you're low level you know, my, my, my high-level thief is never going to bother with you because what is he going to get? You know, if I'm 20th level, I'm not going to go and rob some third-level guy because he's got, like, 15 gold. But once you're an epic character, you're starting to look a lot more attractive to my, uh, to my epic thief. And that's not like, uh, again, like I said, I'm not doing and picking anything in particular is just a consequence of you being famous. There's just a consequence of you being rich. Yeah. If, if you're a thief, you will look for people who are wealthy. Why? Because it's the best payoff. You're worth your time. Yeah, it's worth your time. It's more dangerous, but, you know, uh, greater risk, but much greater reward. So the problem is, is that when you're high level, you tend to attract the kind of people who are attracted to what you have. Super villains. Well, <laughs> you're a super villain, then superheroes. Yeah. I guess I've, I've had, and I know I, <laughs> I had a character who um, really, 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 really hated that because at one point it was really high level, but uncautious. And uh, at one point, I literally had almost everything he had stolen. <laughs> just, yeah, I was like, oh wow, you had a whole bunch of really powerful items, and you're really mighty now. You not you've got a robe <laughs> brandon i want to get your take on this as well and i'm going to jump into the next question with you so brandon what do you think about this keeping things fresh and interesting i think the biggest the biggest thing for me especially moving into this level of play is that it is it's very much and, and this kind of follows on some of the stuff we've been talking about in the, in the chat the seminar chat um it's very much a different mode of play where you're getting to the point where you're not really targeting 
the heroes. You're not targeting the party. You're taking their stuff. You are targeting their the folks they care about. You you know they are big and rich and powerful and famous and people know about them and lots of baddies have gone up against them. Some of them may have survived or been put in jail or whatever it is. So if somebody wants to do them harm or take something from them or weaken them, it's easy enough for them to actually research the party. So the 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 enemies you face and especially like the big bads that you face at higher levels know about you. They know what you can do. They know what your weaknesses are. So if you are playing as a player, like as a PC, if you're playing in a predictable way and people are seeing this, then the enemies that you're going to be facing are going to know what you're capable of and know what your go-to is. So they're going to have, you know, if you're a big uh, cast spells at short range person, they're going to have counter spells. If you are someone who is going to be tossing a bunch of elemental damage, they're going to buy a ring of elemental resistance. You know, like it's very easy for them to be like, oh, well, the party generally takes people out in these three ways. We have people that have seen this, so we're going to defend specifically against that, right? Um, and I think one of the other things is I like to lean on, um, and it's terrible, I totally forget who the author is. I'll look it up after I'm talking, but um, there's a couple of books, one of them in particular about like uh, the monsters know what they're doing, I think is what it's called, where you can very easily strategize based on what creatures have, the abilities they have, what the heroes can do and make it so that it's not just, it's not a fair fight anymore, basically. Um, so if you are going to go into something where it is an encounter and you're going up against someone, you can very easily have it so that the enemy, the nation state, the whatever that you are up against basically knows everything about your characters. So they have to really put in their A game, just like they did at low levels if they were fighting, you know, goblins sneaking through the forest. Now at high levels, they have to put in their A game to survive people that know everything about them. It is very much that kind of supervillain feel that you're trying to to get across for these, these big heroes. So I'm just going to jump to the next question because we are shorter on time. So um, I want to just take a couple more questions before we wrap up. Brandon, how do you handle legendary abilities and layer actions when homebrewing? Uh, specifically, how do you determine point values, damage, special effects, and does it change at high level? And uh, for somebody such as me, why don't you just explain what a layer ability... Uh, okay, I called it the wrong thing, so that goes to show how much I know. Layer action and a legendary ability even is. Sure. Um, so generally, layer actions are, you know, if a dragon is in its layer, that's usually where it came from, or if a monster is in its home base, if uh, you know, Strahd is in his castle, whatever. If somebody is in the place where they live, they probably have set it up with, um, you know, spells of warding. They probably have booby traps. They probably have all kinds of things that they know where stuff is and you don't. So they can set off spells. They can set off elements. Um, often the layer itself will actually go on a particular initiative count and something will happen. So, you know, uh, if a creature can breathe underwater, then their space, like the space you're fighting in, will start filling up with water, hitting into that kind of drowning thing that, uh, that Devin was mentioning. Um, uh, and legendary abilities is the actual person themselves, the creature, the character, the monster, whatever it is, generally means they'll have, you know, legendary saves, means they can auto-pass saves if they fail, if they choose to, um, or they can take extra reactions, they can take actions between the PC's turns so that it evens out a little bit of that uh, action economy where, you know, a party versus one is usually very one-sided. 
unless they have these layer actions and legendary abilities or minions or kind of other monsters, right? It, it balances it out a bit when you have one big bad versus a party. Um, and when you're actually trying to figure out the numbers behind all of that, uh, it gets challenging. Um, it's a little bit tricky. Generally, again, I will go with very similar to how I plan um, at those higher levels, plan things like combats or encounters or whatever it is. The having an in and having an out applies here too. So something like uh, how much damage it does or how much of an effect it has um, often will be an off the cuff. I will have a range predefined and kind of an average space. And then if the party is doing really well, then I'll pick a little bit lower. If they're not doing great, pick a little bit higher or vice versa, depending on what it is, um, where it's really, it's really about making sure that it doesn't hurt the story. Um, cause at that level, it's less about seven hit points and it's more about, did you get a great hit in? Okay. What would that look like? Or how much would that impact things? If they cast a spell at you, for example, I had a game and I hope none of my players listen to this, um, <laughs> particular, uh, seminar, but, uh, I had a, a, an element where a storm bore came down out of the sky and, um, I had it actually trample across all of them and do a ton of damage. And basically I just applied one of its attacks to everybody that ran across. Um, and I thought, Oh, you know, maybe that wasn't, you know, great or fair, or maybe that was too much, but then they all really kind of realized how, uh, challenging this encounter was going to be. And immediately their thinking kind of bumped up to the next level. Um, and they started strategizing and using cover and, and all kinds of things. So it was like, oh, okay, I, I, you know, it was kind of the thing that triggered them to actually kind of get more engaged with the combat. So I think being able to tweak those things and pull them out as needed is a huge, a huge piece of this kind of higher level play where you can, you can tweak things just a little bit to get that extra oomph out of them. Sure. Devin, how about you? Uh, I mean, honestly, I just look at the current, uh, the official ones, the ones that have already been done, and uh, just try to base them a lot off that, uh, tweak the numbers here and there to be something that I'm a little, I think is a little more fair. Uh, um, kind of like what Brandon said, it's, what you're doing is you're offsetting the action economy. You're allowing a single enemy to be able to take on uh, a group and not just get pummeled to death before he even gets a chance to do anything. So in that sense, even just giving them the ability to move or attack between player turns is already like a huge thing, um, especially if their attacks are particularly damaging or if they can move uh, without provoking any additional attacks or anything like that. That, that can really make some effect because you're constantly changing the battlefield. You're, you're making things... Uh, between turns, they'll have a plan and then you'll immediately do something and that completely changes the plan and then they adapt to that and then he does something else and then they have to completely adapt their plan again and it, it just keeps them on their toes and it keeps them moving. Um, layer actions are really nice because it, it it's both thematic and an additional challenge uh, and there are a lot of creatures that have layer actions and legendary actions. Uh, looking them all, at them all, you can kind of start to notice patterns about what tends to cost what uh, what tends to um, be considered worth two or worth three, and you can you can start to find the patterns. And so whenever I have to add them, I usually just take whatever is already existing that's sort of the closest to what I'm trying to do, and then start from there and just sort and kind of extrapolate and adjust the numbers here and there. And you know what? If the numbers don't quite work out, 
that's okay. You've either made them more deadly and thus more um, challenging, or they're not quite as deadly as you hoped they would be, in which case there's nothing wrong with changing up stats mid-fight because the players don't see those, only you do. And as far as they know, that could have been already set. So playing around with it, if, you, if when you're still getting used to whether something is or isn't uh, considered worthy. Like you find that this one legendary action is actually really powerful, and you said he could do it with one, um, it costs one point. Maybe just change that to two mid-fight, and then he just doesn't do it. Or you know, you could uh, you could make it a, a layer action. Maybe that layer action can only be done once every few turns, and it can't be done every turn. You can do this stuff on the fly if you happen to have overshot, but. Reading through the stuff that's already there is what I recommend. How about you, Michelle? Michelle, what we'll do is we'll have you finish this one, and I'm just going to ask you, I think we've got time for one more question after this. So why don't you answer this question? Well, I have somewhat of a different philosophy. I've never changed numbers or roles. I think pretty well in the last 20 years, I don't do that. To me, my philosophy of gaming is that the world exists as it is. The world is a world. And that the, the players essentially exist in it and I've never really been fond when reality all of a sudden just takes a you know a sudden shift even if I'm not aware of it that's just not something I would do or enjoy as a player and certainly would do it as a DM however um, in a lot of my games if very few of my fights are ever designed to be fair fights they're basically just things that happen the world is set as it is and if you, a lot of times the players can actually determine themselves and be like, well, we're not going to leap into that because that's a, I'm first level and there's a dragon currently in there, so we're not going to go there. But if they do, they do. And um, sometimes that has consequences. I think actions, I, I think not thinking ahead or not thinking about your, what you're doing. I think a lot of my players end up thinking a lot more about what, they should and shouldn't do because they're never a hundred percent sure that the fight is ever going to be fair or easy or possible. Um, and it's, it, it brings, and sometimes I have to admit that I've gone, sometimes on players I've gone into something that really they shouldn't do, do it. It's not really advisable, but that they, they were thinking ahead and actually still managed to surprise me and, uh, and beat it. And that, those are the best ones because quite frankly, I'm not going, Okay, I thought you guys were dead for sure. But yeah. I'm still alive. Um, one of my, the other thing too, I think that a lot of these are, certainly in my games, they tend to be self-policing uh, in some ways. So um, I used to have, I don't know if you there was a book, somebody was talking about a book as an inspiration. One of mine was, there's a book called Guards, Guards, Guards. And one of the fun concepts was it was the idea that, you know, when you have like, you know, Rambo, and he's killed, like, the 100 toughest people you know. If you're a guard, why the heck would you rush out to it and, and then fight it? I mean, I wouldn't. It's essentially suicide. So I think that a lot of times, high-level players won't get attacked by low-level stuff. Why? Because low-level stuff go, eh, no, no, not that guy. He's, you know, yeah, he's death on a stick. Um, so... Michelle, and, oh, sorry, just I just finished. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And then, of course, the more powerful beings uh, will seek out sometimes. Um, you know, they are heroes, largely because they're a, a source of something they might want or something that uh, they could take. 
uh, if you're a super villain like what uh, somebody was talking about, you know, you know, the guy that's got the really, really cool artifact might be the thing I want. And yes, they're a lot easier to find because they're famous. Okay, I'm going to have a quick hit question for everybody. I'm going to just going to go in reverse order here. Michelle, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so I'm just going to kind of summarize this quick. Sure. sure. Um, so given that high level, uh, higher level play is going to engage more geopolitics, interacting with superpowers, handling things like actual war, world changing, reality changing, um, everything on such a big scale. And as a GM, the amount of complexity, work, preparation, is it worth your time to run high-level games? I love high-level games. I really do. Um, mind you, I love low-level games, but they're really a different feel. So it's, it's like, you know, which of the two kids you like the most. Uh, they have an extremely different thing. I mean, uh, low-level games have a, a much more, you, you know, you're, you're out there just trying to survive and just, you know, fighting that. Uh, fighting that goblin and oh my god I managed to get past it and stuff and then high level games as, uh, as someone was saying before uh, it, it's a game of you know I, I like paraphrase it it's a game of thrones right you get to move entire societies you get to be involved in great deeds and you know to create your own legends they're both really cool I think they're both putting their work in uh, but they're a very different feel all right, Devin, is it worth it? Uh, I mean, I think it's worth it if you want, if you're willing to put the work in. Um, it, it's going to depend on what your players want, and what you want as a GM. If you don't want to have to put all that kind of effort in and to, to do that, then it's probably not going to be worth it for you. But if it's something that you're interested in, if you want to be telling epic stories of world-changing events, or if you've been running a game for a long time and your players have gotten to a high enough level that you want to really just have this this massive threat that really uh, to really sell just how um, um, amazing they are and how you you want to threaten this big thing that they've worked the whole campaign to build up. Then it can be it can be very rewarding. Uh, there's a D and D green tech story out there uh, you can find just by looking up Awakened Tarask Wizard, and uh, just read through that and then tell me you don't want to do a game like that. <laughs> Cool, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here with Brandon. I think, so for me, uh, a couple of my campaigns are, are pushing into the, the kind of higher mid to high level space, and I'm still really, really enjoying them. So I think if you build it up right from the beginning, you know the PCs enough, you know the world enough, that it's definitely worth it and worth kind of investing the time, because you've also kind of pre-invested a lot of it. Um, I've also run a ton of one-shots up in the kind of higher level space. And I really enjoy that because you don't have to kind of meet up and match things that you've said before. There is no before. You can just kind of say something, something, and that's how the world is. And you don't have to work with that then in future, right? It really just has to exist for that one-shot. Um, and I strongly recommend running some one-shots at those higher levels just to see how they work. Um, because that will give you personally a really good idea of whether it's worth it for you and whether you enjoy it as a DM or GM to run things at that high level. Great. So I guess that's, that's about it. That's about time. So I just want to take a minute to thank everybody who put their input in here today, all of our panelists, as well as everybody who submitted a question. I think I got most of them. 
Uh, just want to plug our upcoming uh, next seminar, which is on May 13th. We have Enhancing Role Play with Improv. Whether you're a, play, a GM or a player, comfort and ease with role playing makes your game richer and more enjoyable experience for all. Want to up your skills and take your role playing to the next level? Come learn from our panelists who will use their experience with improvisation to put some sweet, sweet icing on that RPG cake. We have a moderator, Sarah, and we have panelists, Mark, Michelle, and Alpha. Come join us and listen in. Till next time on Gamer Geek Lockdown. Have a good night, everybody.